welcome to this week's Tell Me About the Podcast. This week we discuss entity types and which one to choose for your business. We hope you enjoy. Hi Dad. Hey Beth, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Oh, really good, thank you very much. Uh, as we're recording this, of course, the clocks have just gone forward, so I'm looking forward to some light evenings, get back out in my garden again. It was an absolute nightmare this morning, though. <laughs> not, not enjoyable. I woke up at half seven and I was like, oh, an extra hour in bed, and then my alarm went off at half eight, like two minutes later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. But must embrace it. Spring and then summer are now all within our grasp. So that's really nice after a wet, dismal winter that we've had to put up with again. How's your week been? Yeah, it's been a it's been a great week. On Thursday, I was with the Open Group in Reading, uh, recording a an episode of their Open Comments podcast, which was jolly good fun. Very interesting. We got into topics around lifelong learning, curiosity, some work around. Uh, entrepreneurs helping students to imagine how they might become self-employed as they go through their graduation process it was very interesting stuff yeah and yesterday I was up in Oxford at a, a one-day course my current hobby of all the various hobbies I've got of creative writing um, so did a, a one-day course as part of the Oxford Literary Festival um, which was all about sources of ideas for creative writing and fiction very nice lovely how about you what was your week like um i didn't really do much but work this week i picked up my wedding dress Oh, very nice. Yeah, so we're one step closer. We're, we're down to a month till the wedding now. So yeah, that's all that's really happened to me this week other than working. <laughs> right. Just working. But that's exciting. <laughs> that's an exciting thing to do, another step in the right direction. So my question for you this week is about the different paths you can follow to start up a company. So for example, some people just have their skill set, some tools, maybe not even a business bank account. Um, and others seem like they, you know, create a whole company, register it, all of that jazz. What's the best path for me or anyone? And what dictates that path that you follow? It's a great question. Uh, and one that needs a little bit of careful thought, I think. Having said that, it is possible to make changes with regard to how you decide to set up your first company, how you decide to start up for yourself. But let's let's walk through the obvious um, options that one would have. In the first instance, just simply starting to work for yourself would be what in the UK is called working as a sole trader. This is just you. You may be trading as something, you may have a a name that you trade under, but it would just be Beth Smith trading as bethvictoria.com. That's a sole trader situation. There's no limited after your name or anything like that because there is no separate entity that you've created. It's just you working under a brand you've created. All you need to do in this situation is just have some basic business setup. We'll perhaps come to that a bit later on. I think this is the most common form of self-employment for those who are making the transition um, to starting up their own business from a an employed position that they've been in before. Um, I think in each of these options that we look at, it's worth thinking about what I call the professional overhead, because you do require to have certain reporting done around your business activities, and you may require to have certain um, documentation or systems or processes put in place by 
other people who are professionals in their field. With a sole trader, that professional overhead is as low as it can be. You probably would need an accountant or a fairly high-end bookkeeper to help you with your self-assessment tax returns at the end of the year, which is how you will pay your tax now you're self-employed. It's not through the payroll. We'll talk a little bit later, I think, on this podcast about different types of income, and we'll get into that at that point. But when you're working as a sole trader, you're likely just taking money out of your business bank account to put into your private bank account as you need that to cover your living expenses. And then at the end of each tax year, there will need to be some preparation of self-assessment tax return to show how much did you earn and what tax do you owe on that. So an accountant or high-end bookkeeper is necessary, but I would also encourage anybody who's got a, um, a mathematics or financial head on them to give consideration to doing your own self-assessment tax return and saving the money of the, um, of the professional that you might need. You're only accountable to yourself in this model, so why not think about how much you can do for yourself? Or get a dad like you who can do it for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> happy to help family and close friends. I suppose the next obvious method of starting up is if you're working with somebody else, if you have the intention to be in partnership with one or more other people, then you will start up as a partnership. Sole trader is is a person operating individually on their own account. Partnership would be a group of in two or more individuals operating on their collective own account. There's a requirement now for a slightly more in terms of that professional overhead. A good partnership is going to need a partnership agreement. You're going to need a document that will set out between you and your partners what the intention of your partnership is, how you will be paid by that partnership, how decisions will be made, how you will enter into contracts, how each of the partners can represent the partnership. A good partnership agreement supporting a good partnership should stay in the draw. If it's a good partnership, the partnership agreement is only there to help solve problems that arise between the partners. And if it's a good partnership, that partnership agreement should never have to see the light of day once it's been prepared, agreed and signed off. But it is there to provide a framework for problem solving if that can't be dealt with in the normal cut and thrust of business where partners might disagree upon something. And don't get me wrong, disagreement between partners, if it's constructive, is a highly valuable thing to have. That's when the partners can become greater than the sum of their parts and really start to justify why partnership was the appropriate method of starting up your business. So you will need a lawyer to help draw up that partnership agreement. That's going to be important. But the partners should make sure that they've discussed and agreed all of the things they can think could be a problem. So they're instructing the lawyer on what they want in the partnership agreement rather than consulting with the lawyer on what might be in the partnership agreement. So really staying in control of that time and money spent with a lawyer. And here, I think, in the professional overhead for this type of startup, you are going to need an accountant. I think partnership accounts need to be prepared at the end of each year. And the independence, the third-party arm's-length independence of an accountant will give all the partners the right degree of comfort that the financial reporting is being prepared and put forward in the right way, in a, in a, in a correct and uh, objective way. And likewise, 
that accountant would then probably do the self-assessment tax returns for each individual partner which arise out of the partnership because bear in mind this is a collective of people think of a partnership as a collection of sole traders who are now submitting to the intent of a partnership so once the partnership accounts are prepared each of the individuals will then do a self-assessment tax return and as above that may be done by your accountant or you may choose to do that yourself but the partnership accounts themselves should be done by an independent uh, person or body. The third type of path one could take is that of a limited liability partnership. And this is where you want to operate as a partnership, but you feel there are limits that you want to place upon your liabilities. Um, so it, it might be that you are a professional services company with a high degree of duty of care. As, as you know, previous podcasts, I was a chartered surveyor and practiced as such for a number of years. And I had a very high duty of care when I was advising someone upon the condition of their home that they were going to buy. If I got that wrong and I missed a subsidence uh, situation, situation in that house and they went ahead and bought it on good faith of me saying that I didn't find anything wrong with it quite rightly they're going to come back and they're going to want me to pay the difference between the value of that house as they thought it was in good condition and the value of that house as it is now with subsidence which generally would be the cost of repairs for those interested in how that calculation would be made I could limit my liability within a partnership by registering as an LLP and and that says how much individual responsibility I will have for the liabilities of the partnership. We'll talk about that professional liability in a, in a little while, again, as under business basics, I think. But for now, a, a limited liability partnership is something that would operate exactly the same as a partnership, but you would choose it if there was a high degree of liability that individual partners could assume for the actions of the partnership. I think it's unlikely that most of the people listening to this podcast would think about an LLP as their start point. They might go into partnership and then there might be something that changes in the way that they conduct their business that leads to them needing to be a limited liability partnership. So I think actually that's probably not an initial choice. I think LLP is something that one might find yourself wanting through circumstances of your trading. Then I suppose the fourth and perhaps the most important consideration is whether to establish a limited company that will be your startup. You can do this whether it's just yourself or you have others that you are wanting to start up with. A limited company is an entirely separate entity to you. You start a limited company and it's just yourself. There are two people in the room. There are There is you and you are probably a director and you are probably the shareholder or a shareholder, and then there is the company. And the company is something that law sees as a separate entity. Your job as a director is to make choices and decisions for the best interests of that limited company. Your job as a shareholder is to monitor the directors, and of course, therefore, if you are both the director and the shareholder, it's all within your single view of the world but ultimately you might have different shareholders when a startup is bringing in equity finance that is that it is selling shares so let's say let's say bethvictoria.com is going to be beth victoria limited and you've got somebody who's going to give you ten thousand pounds to invest in a new product but they want 20 percent of your business for that ten thousand pounds very dragon's den i know but let's stick with it 
um, then a limited company is how is how you easily give away 20% of your business. They would put £10,000 into the limited company. That's not your money, it's the limited company's money. And you would grant them 20% of the shares. So you own 80%, they own 20%, and there's £10,000 of startup cash now in the business for you to spend in the agreed way. I doubt anybody's giving you money without having a sense of how you're going to spend it. And then the business gets on and spends that money to further its cause towards making profits. And the return on that money is then when profits get shared amongst the shareholders, whoever gave you that £10,000 will take their 20% of whatever dividends are declared by the company. So a limited company is an entirely separate entity, is most useful, again, where there is a liability that you want to limit for yourself personally, but again, we'll talk about insurances in a short while, and where you potentially want to share the ownership of your company, even though you may be the only director of that company. A company can have as many shareholders as it like. Uh, we won't get into it in, in this podcast, but we can have all sorts of different types of shareholdings within a company. We can have as many directors as we like within a company as well. You may have heard of the term of non-exec director within limited companies. It's an old term now. Uh, any director, whether they are um, executive or non-executive, in the eyes of the law, has the same degree of duty of care over the day-to-day -day running and management of their the limited company of which they are a director. But typically, a non-exec is an informal term used for people whose advice you may want and who therefore should be effectively listed as a part Part of the controlling body of the limited company but they're not working in the company they're just probably providing some degree of advice or guidance from a specialist area that they bring into your organization one thing to bear in mind if you choose the limited company is that your finances your company's ownership directorships will all be in the public domain because it's all registered with Companies House here in the UK and that's easily accessible. So over time you are required to deposit various documents annually and as things change and develop within your company to report those certain types of changes, leaving, joining directors, changes in shareholder ownership, etc. Um, all of those things need to be reported as they happen. So Companies House can become quite a rich seam of publicly accessible detailed information about your company and its trading history. So bear that in mind when deciding on limited company or no. The professional overhead with a limited company is going to be the largest, almost certainly. You will require an accountant to prepare statutory accounts. You don't need an audit, probably in the first instance, but you will need statutory accounts in a particular format that can be deposited with Companies House and then used for the calculation of corporation tax. You'll need a corporation tax return every year because you will pay tax on your profits um, as, as they arise within the company separate to what tax you might pay on what money you take out of the company. And we'll talk a bit about that under the business basics heading in a little while again. Um, you'll need that company house registration. That can be done standalone. You, one can do that on your own uh, online these days. But if there are specifics around how the company is to be formed, then again, a, a lawyer may be useful to ensure that's done correctly from the, from the start. So I think limited companies, great when you're looking at ways in which you can bring money into your startup, has, uh, has the downside of 
putting your company into the public domain and of incurring probably the highest degree of professional overhead. So even if you don't trade within your company or your trading is minimal, that things don't go as you had planned, you could still find yourself with a an accountant's bill for statutory accounts at the end of the year and other legal services that you might have purchased along the way. So careful consideration on that. There is a fifth type here in the UK called public limited company, but I'm not sure that one's going to start up PLC. That might be a long way down the road of your journey, but I doubt you're going to start up as a PLC, so we won't get into that here. So if you're starting a business with the intention to sell it, would you go straight to having a limited or can you start as a sole trader and then go to a limited? That's a great question, Beth. I would suggest that one doesn't decide on how to start your company up based upon your exit strategy. It's good that you would start up with an exit strategy, such as to sell your business, but I think there's plenty of opportunities that are going to arise along the way as to how you put yourself in the best possible shape to sell. That's what I call grooming, and I'm sure that we'll get into business grooming in a later episode of this series. Um, I would suggest that, frankly, you keep it as simple as possible at the startup stage. I think there's just a simple kind of decision tree here. If you're operating on your own, then you can ignore partnerships and limited liability partnerships. So that narrows you down really to whether you're going to be a sole trader or start a limited company from the get-go. And I think that decision is simply whether there are liabilities that you might be taking on within your company that you want to limit, in which case you'd go to the limited liability company, and or that you want to bring in equity funding, as we were talking about earlier on, in which case a limited liability company with a shareholding that can be divisible between people is the right way to go forward. If you're not worried about liability and you have no ambitions to bring in equity funding in the early stages, then it's sole trader. Start as a sole trader. You can change at any time you like. You can convert from sole trader to partnership, sole trader to limited liability partnership, convert a partnership into an LLP. You can convert a sole trader to a limited company, a partnership to a limited company or a partnership back to a sole trader again. It's a little difficult to start a limited company and then go back to being a sole trader. That's probably the only um, transition that's got complexities to it. All of the others are fairly straightforward transitions which you can choose to do at the right times. And so I think that's that's where the decision making comes in about an exit strategy is along the journey after your startup and you can see how you're going to exit. There's also a big taxation question in there as well in that is it if you're a sole trader and you sell your business you're effectively selling the assets and the goodwill of your company and that money comes to you in a slightly different way I understand than if you start a limited company and you sell the limited company. That money comes to you in in a slightly different way again and taxation figures in there. So there's a number of different considerations to what is the best way to start up but I do recommend keeping it simple to just get you going and concentrate on the startup itself and then as you see your exit strategy emerging as a reality making decisions about how you transition the style of your business to best suit your exit strategy. In terms of the equity finance for a limited company if you find a business angel that was going to give you some money would that count as that because are they shareholders or a business angel just 
note that I, I, I gifting. suspect that certainly wherever I've done business angel funding, I've always insisted that I'm investing in a limited company okay. um, for two reasons. One is when I do that, it is cleaner for me to buy a shareholding in a limited company and then sit alongside other shareholders, one of which will be the entrepreneur. And it's always important for me to make sure the entrepreneur has the largest slice of the equity pie. I don't want to undermine the entrepreneur by taking too much of their business. But also, it gives me the opportunity to be a director of that company. And I may not have anything to do with the day-to-day operations, and I certainly would never work in that business, but it gives me a chance to have a vote um, on certain key matters. Um, A limited company has to have an AGM, quite procedural and formulaic for most small companies, but, but nevertheless, there are then limits on what can be done. A shareholders agreement can be written up in the same way as a partnership agreement, as we discussed earlier, giving certain limits and controls that the investor can impose upon the way that the directors at large run the company. So all those things are only really possible within the context of a limited company. If you're not giving any money, then would you be a non-exec? A non-exec, I would suggest, is something that is invited into the business by the entrepreneur where they feel they need specific guidance. Um, I, I, I mean, exit strategy is, is a good example. Um, some entrepreneurs may be fabulous at doing doing what they do best, doing their thing, and create a very valuable company as a result of that. But they have no idea how to prepare their business for sale, in which case they may then invite somebody who is a specialist within preparation for sale to come and join their board of directors and to guide them over the space of one, two, three years, whatever it might be, this grooming piece that I touched on earlier on, to get everything in the best possible shape it can be to maximise the valuation that can be applied to the business. Alternatively, it might be that your business wants to enter into a new market and you have no real knowledge or no connections or network within that market, but you know somebody who is a serious mover and shaker within said market, you may then invite them to come and be a non-exec director. They won't work in your business at all. They'll just provide you with a certain amount of time for a certain fee um, and then they'll sit and they'll guide you. They'll talk to you and they'll guide you and they'll comment and they'll shape and they'll assist with a strategy to help you do what you want to do in that new market from their position of um, specialist knowledge and strength. And a non-exec director may not be a non-exec director for the entire duration of your entrepreneurial journey. A non-exec may well be invited in for a fixed term to help you achieve a change or development or transition within your business. And then once that job's done, non-exec would stand down again. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So we've had a question come in from one of our listeners. So I'm just going to read it to you and then see what you think and give me an answer Mm -hmm. i'm an interior designer and an artist in my spare time who has been approached to create a range of rugs with a supplier and would love to work on this full time how do i navigate new opportunities and or starting my own business whilst not breaking terms of my work contract or the new company being a conflict of interest okay it's a great question and i'm sure many people will find themselves in this uh, situation with this dilemma um I think what we probably need to do is to, if we categorise this as how do we start up whilst being in employment, I think I would recommend that we create a framework in which the decision can be made. So we try and move this to be an objective decision about how to move forward rather than the emotionally driven subjectivity, which is easy to um, bring into play here. 
I think the first thing that this uh, listener should do is to study their existing contract of employment. Uh, Mention is made here of potential conflicts of interest. Conflicts of interest will arise where the existing contract of employment contains one of probably two specific clauses. The first of those is what would be called a non-compete clause. And what that's trying to do is to limit the type of jobs, whether they be employed or self-employed, that the employee can do after they've left the employment of the employer. Um, These have to be very carefully drawn up, these non-compete agreements. There's been a lot of challenge of them in the courts over the years. They've got to be realistic and proportionate. So they have to be specific about products and service, um, and the existing employer has to be able to demonstrate, if they're going to enforce a non-compete, that what it is that employee is going to go off to do is going to have an effect upon, a negative effect upon the business of the employer. So here, for example, where I think the, uh, the listener is uh, intent upon uh, doing some rug design for another company whilst working as an interior designer, if a non-compete clause exists within the contract of employment, the first question I'd ask is, does the current employer design rugs? If the answer to that is yes, then I think there's more specific consideration needed. If the answer to that is no, I don't believe that there would be a competition issue arising from here because the current employer can't turn back and say, by taking that opportunity, the employee has in some way or other detrimentally affected our business. If the answer is yes, then I think there needs to be careful consideration of the next move, and that's probably around negotiation. But I mentioned that there's two potential clauses within a contract of employment that can lead to conflict of interest, and the second after non-compete is whether there's a clause of exclusivity within the contract. That means that the contract is saying that the employee can only work for the employer, can't have any secondary or subsequent jobs they do regardless. Again, there has to be a realistic and proportional component to such clauses. One can't just simply prevent people from having a second job. They may need to work in a pub behind a bar in the evenings to make the extra pennies necessary to meet the mortgage or the rent or keep the kids in clean shoes or whatever it might be. So that exclusivity, if it exists, needs to again first of all be determined whether it's realistic and proportionate and if so then think about how that's gotten round. In both cases, If either the non-compete or the exclusivity clause is considered to be a barrier to going forward, then my recommendation is talk to your employer. Establish whether there is some compromise that can be reached around these situations. There might also be other limiting factors within the existing contract of employment that need to be assessed, and that is whether there's a non-disclosure clause within there, in which case you may be able to take this new opportunity, but you can't use any intel about your previous employer, its markets, its, its technologies, systems, processes, controls, intellectual property. None of that can be harnessed into your new work opportunity. That's probably to the betterment, because you want to be original in the way that you approach your startup. You don't want to be just trying to do things the same way that somebody else did. And you certainly don't want to be in a position where potentially 
customers in niche areas would see that you're running your business on very similar lines to somebody else or your prior employer. And the other limiting factor may be non-solicit and that shouldn't come into play either because that's just simply saying that if you do leave uh, wherever you go, be you an employee or self-employed, that for a period of time you won't try and entice ex- other existing employees of employer away to come and work with you. And most non-solicit clauses will, will actually have a caveat in them saying if you do you you're going to pay the employer for the privilege so it's not sometimes that it isn't just a blank you can't you can't steal our people it's if you do steal our people we're going to we're going to make you pay for it looking at the existing contract and establishing the extent to which that does or does not limit taking the opportunity i think the other part of this assessment is the business plan of the new opportunity is it one that's going to lead to sustainable success is it one that's going to give you a stepping stone from which you can then go on and find other contracts to create a meaningful sustainable business or is it a dead end is it a an opportunity to design some rugs with another company for which you're prepared to turn in your existing job but actually there's nothing else you can see happening after that that you can monetize i.e it's a single one-off thing obviously if it's a dead end you've got to think very carefully about turning in your current job to to take that if it's going to lead to a sustainable success it's the golden opportunity and i think one has to get on and take them because when else might it come up if you say no to this one i think there's also some attitudinal issues that our listeners should take into account um in the new venture what might be the cost to you of participating in that and what might be the outcome for you is that balance the risk and reward within that within that new company opportunity and I think you also should work on the basis that if you take it there's no going back if it fails you're going to have to find something else to do because you're not just going to go and knock on your previous employer's door and say sorry that didn't work can I have my old job back please so I do think you've got to work on the basis of some finality to your decision but overall I think you've got to find the way to do it not not start from the basis that your current contract may limit you I think you've got to take the opportunity, overcome the fears that are intent in that and get it done now because who knows when the next opportunity might show its face. listening to our seventh episode we hope you enjoyed it join us next week when we will be talking about the basics of setting up a business please follow like review and head to our instagram at tell me about pod and our website tell me about pod.com to keep updated